There's times when there are certain things in the world around us that kind of warrant our attention as followers of Jesus and specifically warrant us to come before the Lord and pray. And one of those things this past week uh, was going on in the Supreme Court in our nation as they were hearing oral arguments for a case that has the potential to have massive implications for one of the most tragic decisions that a court of America has ever made in 1973 with the legalization of abortion nationwide. And uh, the arguments that were heard this week and then the subsequent things that will take place next year have the potential to potentially um, lead in a direction of overturning that. And so as followers of Jesus, and especially as we study the birth of Christ, as, as we look at God working in the womb, even to cause John the Baptist, as he, he's in his mother's womb, to recognize Jesus, God values life in the womb. And we have to as well as followers of Jesus. And so as I'm going to pray for our time in the Word this morning, but I also want to just kind of uniquely pray for that. And if you guys would join me there as well. So let's pray to the Lord. Father, we come to you because you are the author of life. You're the author of spiritual life. That by faith we can look to Christ and have life in him forever. And you're the author of physical life. That you breathe the breath into men and women. And you form us in our mother's wombs. And you knit us together. And you care for life from beginning to end. And especially, God, we know you care for the least and the most helpless among us, and we cannot think of anyone more helpless than the baby that is being formed in its mother's womb. And so, Lord, we intercede this morning because we believe that you hear our prayers and you value life. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, over the next year, that you would potentially realter the course of our nation as it relates to the issue of abortion. Oh God, we pray that this would cease. We pray that we as Christians would lead out in wonderful things like adoption and foster care to provide avenues for men and women who are in tough situations to go to as opposed to ending a pregnancy. God, I pray that we would be compassionate and gracious even as we know this is an issue our own community wrestles with. God, we pray that your justice, that your dignity that you view human life with would be known throughout our nation. Would we pray for our time in the Word together, ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth of Luke 1. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, one of the kind of most well-known announcements that arrived at the birth of Jesus was the angels who announced that God was bringing good news of great joy to all people. And one thing that I, I, as I was thinking through that phrase and even thinking through what we might do over the next few weeks together is, is to ask the question specifically, okay, what does it mean to say that the gospel is good news for all people? For all kinds of people. How does God, in His grace, in Christ, speak specifically 
to you and to me because while, while the same general truth of the gospel is true for everyone, that we are all sinners in need of a Savior, God does uniquely bring that truth to bear on people depending on who we are. And so I, we, we, we know that the gospel is good news for men and women. The gospel is good news for the young and the old. The gospel is good news for those who grew up near to the Lord and those who grew up far from the Lord. The gospel speaks to a successful lawyer and the gospel speaks to a single mother. The gospel speaks to someone who is recovering from an addiction and the gospel speaks to elementary school students. The gospel offers a future for those at the end of their lives and the gospel offers purpose and meaning for those at the beginning of their lives. The gospel heals the broken and the gospel humbles the proud. And so with that kind of foundation in view, that, that is kind of what went behind my thinking of calling our time together over the next four weeks, sinners and saints. Because I think when, you, when we study, we're going to study Luke chapter 1 and 2, we see people who are in both of those categories, We see people respond to the birth of Jesus as we might expect sinners to respond, not with immediate happy acceptance, but in a variety of ways. And then we also see some people respond to the birth of Jesus as saints who just readily and happily receive him. And the gospel speaks to both kinds of people. So this morning we're going to see that the birth of Jesus has implications for Skeptics like Zechariah, wife of Elizabeth, the father of John the Baptist. Next week, Lord willing, we'll see that the gospel, the birth of Jesus speaks to humble people like Mary, who's ready to receive him. After that, we'll see that the gospel speaks to outsiders, those on the fringes like the shepherds, who were the least and the last people who might have been invited to visit the newly born king. And then, Lord willing, final week, we'll see how the gospel speaks specifically to people like Simeon and Anna who had waited their entire lives patiently to see the coming Messiah. Hopeful people like that. And so this morning, we're going to, as I mentioned, we're going to look at how the birth of Jesus and how the gospel speaks to skeptics like Zechariah. You might even call Zechariah a righteous skeptic, which I think to many of us probably sounds like something of an oxymoron, like those two terms don't normally go together. How can someone be righteous and seeking to follow the Lord, but also skeptical and have difficulty believing his word? Those two things can happen and often happen in our own lives. And I think Zechariah in a real way kind of shows us the complexities of a life of faith that we don't always just follow straight along the same line, that we have ebbs and flows. And so Zechariah is going to show us that. So if you you have your Bible open, we're going to kind of focus in on the first piece of Zechariah's story, and then we'll skip ahead to where it concludes. Next week, Randy will will take us through the the section in between there that deals with Mary. But but look with me. I'm going to read 
just the first few verses, and then we'll kind of slowly work our way through Luke 1. So beginning in Luke 1, verse 5, we'll read 5, 6, and 7 here at the beginning. Luke gave his brief introduction to his gospel in verses 1 to 4, and then he now begins with his uh, description of the birth of Jesus, which begins with the birth of John the Baptist. So look at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So I think it's interesting that Luke begins his account of the birth of Jesus with this righteous, blameless couple who is also barren and childless. Mentioned that Zechariah and Elizabeth, their, their roots go way back. Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron, who was the first kind of constituted priest of the people of Israel, from whom all the other priests from his line, they, they ministered and worshipped and, and mediated the presence of the Lord on behalf of the people in the temple. And so Elizabeth is, is from that line, and Abijah is similarly what, where Zechariah is from, is, is a family of priests. So they are like uniquely qualified to serve in the temple where they had been doing for literally their entire lives. And they had been doing this knowing that it had been 800 years years since God first promised to Isaiah, for example, that a child would be born and a son would be given and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 800 years since that was spoken. It had been 400 years since they had even heard a single word from God. Malachi, the final book of the Old Testament, final prophet from God before the birth of Jesus was 400 years before this. So not only were Zechariah and Elizabeth old themselves, they were members of people of Israel who had been waiting for centuries to hear from the Lord. And now here they are, we're told that Herod is king of Judea. And Herod was a false king. He was not a rightful king. Not only was he not fully Jewish, but also he had allied himself with the Romans, the oppressors of God's people, and he had set himself up as king of the Jews, is what he called himself. And so, it, like you said, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're, they're blameless, but also it says that they were barren. Elizabeth, Elizabeth was barren, and they had no children, no descendants. They were advanced in years. We don't know necessarily how old that means they were, but they were past the age of being able to have children. And right here, Luke connects the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth with so many faithful people throughout the history of Scripture who are walking in righteousness before God and who are dealing with significant disappointment especially even as it relates to not being able to have children. You remember Abraham and Sarah 
the Old Testament, they're in their 90s without kids before the Lord comes to them. Even Abraham and Sarah's own son Isaac, his wife, had trouble having children. Isaac's son Jacob, his wife Rachel, had trouble having children. And then you continue reading in 1 Samuel, you see a woman named Hannah who is praying to the Lord for a child, and and, and she prays to God, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and do not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life. How many times must Elizabeth and Zechariah have sat and prayed that verse without it being answered to this point? And I think it's interesting that Luke begins the story of Christmas right here. That God graciously does not forget his people's prayers when they are dealing with unanswered longings that they have. And it may be true that some of you are in a similar place right now, or perhaps you have someone close to you is in a similar place to this right now. And I, I pray that if, that if that is you, if you're dealing with some kind of disappointment on this kind of level, the temptation is to either point the finger at God and say, you've forgotten me and you're no longer faithful, or the temptation is to point the finger at yourself and say, what is wrong with me? And maybe I don't have enough faith. Neither of those are true. There are times when... These things happen so that God can glorify himself through this disappointment. And that's what he wants to do for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, Zechariah was righteous, it says, blamelessly following the commandments of the Lord, but that does not mean he was perfect. Look at verse 8. Now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty... According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Verse 11, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So Zechariah has been chosen to enter into the holy place of the temple and to burn incense to basically the highest privilege you could have as he was ministering in the temple was to do this, and this is like really maybe described as probably the biggest moment of his life to this point because he's serving the Lord faithfully and then an angel of the Lord appears and no one, remember, no one has, God has not spoken to his people like this for 400 years. And an angel of the Lord appears and speaks to Zechariah and immediately, what does it say in verse 12? Zechariah was troubled. The only other time that word for troubled appears in Luke's gospel is at the end when the risen Jesus shows up to his disciples and he asks them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? 
So this term does not just mean Zechariah is afraid, but it also carries with it the idea that he has some degree of doubt or skepticism or something about what is going on in this moment. So he is afraid, yes, but also he's, he's a bit troubled. And what the angel says to him, do not be afraid, your prayer has been heard. Presumably this is the prayer that he and Elizabeth have been praying for a son. And then look at verse 14. It says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, if you take notes in your Bible, you can write next to verses 16, 17, Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. This is almost a direct quotation of those verses that are the very last verses of the Old Testament. So, what's happening here? God is just picking up right where he left off. To say 400 years may have passed since you heard a word from me, but I have not forgotten exactly what I said then through the prophet Malachi. And so he says that there in verses 16 and 17. Now, Zechariah's response here to the angel of the Lord tells us that it, that it is possible to be faithfully following the commands of God on the one hand and still not be ready to receive his word on the other hand. So somewhere along the way, I think, Zechariah kind of assumed that the Lord was finished with he and Elizabeth in terms of his plans that he had for their lives. Yes, they were going to continue to faithfully serve him, doing their duty in the temple, but I think somewhere along the way, he had kind of resigned himself that that was going to be the extent of his calling and, and how God was going to use him in his life. But as long as we still have breath, God does still have a purpose for us being here. And now he shows this to Zechariah in a miraculous way. He may not do this for us, but the point still stands that God's purposes for us do not diminish just because we increase in age. And so look at verse 18. Hearing all this from the angel, this is where Zechariah begins to take a turn. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me 
in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So Zechariah's response to this tremendous promise from the angel of the Lord for he and Elizabeth is how shall I know this will happen? In essence, give me some proof. As if an angel appearing to him in the middle of the temple is not enough of a sign. He wants a little bit more from the Lord just to confirm that what he actually has heard is is going to come true. He says, how shall I know this? And as I was looking at that this week, maybe you're thinking this right now. That doesn't seem like a terrible question to ask, right? On the surface, like I would probably do something similar. But the reason why the Lord through his angel Gabriel responds as he does to Zechariah is because beneath this question is a heart of unbelief. Failure to believe the word of God as it was spoken to him in that moment. A failure to just simply take God at his word, forgetting all of the years of struggle and difficulty that he and his wife Elizabeth have had and saying, yes, Lord, like Mary will next week. Yes, Lord, let it be done to your servant as it pleases you. No, he says, wait a minute, I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. In essence, Zechariah has been so consumed with his disappointing situation that even when God shows up, he can't take his mind or his eyes off of his problem, off of years of struggle that, that he and Elizabeth have had together. One of the strangest things that's ever happened to me occurred in sixth grade as I was working on a science project with my dad. We were building this bridge that was incredible. Um, and we were using super glue to connect the wood pieces together and everything. And I was leaning real close and squeezing that little bottle of instant dry super glue and did it too hard and kind of splashed everywhere and, and went in my eyes. And I uh, immediately ran to the bathroom, but literally in the three seconds it took me to get there, it had kind of dried and already set in place in my eyes. And so I'll spare you the details of the longer story, but we made an emergency visit to the eye doctor. He set me under, you know, in one of those chairs, very carefully just kind of peeled these things off of my eyes. And and eventually I I was okay by the end of it and had no long-term effects of it other than I was a little bit afraid to use super glue again for a little while. But the interesting thing about that is literally the moment that happened to me, I could not think about, talk about, or even look at anything else until that thing was dealt with. Because it both hurt and it was just annoying and it was clouding my vision of everything else going on in my life. And so in some ways what Zachariah is dealing with is obstructing his ability to see who God is when he shows up. And until God graciously and kind of carefully helps him view his problem, not right in front of him, but just kind of set it aside for a moment, see who the Lord is and trust that he will deal with it, then Zechariah is not going to be able to respond in faith. So that's what God does. God graciously disciplines him by saying, okay, With your lips, you kind of question the word of the Lord. So I'm just going to keep your lips silent for a little while. So you can consider the words of the Lord. And and God, over the next 
really nine months, graciously disciplines Zechariah in a way that I can only imagine, and you probably can too, was not pleasant for him. I mean, you saw it at the end of this section in verse 25. Elizabeth gets to praise the Lord for what he's done for her. He's looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people, and and Zechariah is on the sidelines silent. He misses out on the ability to praise God with his wife when she found out that she was going to have a child because he was so concerned with his situation in life that he could not accurately hear the word of the Lord. So for nine months, Zechariah is alone with his thoughts. And he's waiting and waiting. And now look ahead, skip ahead with me to verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. They said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. Sure, Zechariah had that writing tablet nearby for nine months, as that was the only way... That he was able to communicate. But he writes, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke. Here's the first thing he does. Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be for the hand of of the Lord was with him. In silence for nine months, Zechariah waited. And there were two things that could have happened to him during that time. Either his heart could have hardened to the Lord because he was frustrated by what God was doing to discipline him. He could have remained stubborn in his doubts about whether or not this was all going to turn out. Or over the course of that time, he could humbly submit himself to the Lord's discipline, understanding that it was what was best for him, that God never disciplines his children without a reason. God never disciplines and then just says, well, this is happening because I said so. This is happening because God knew what Zechariah needed more than he knew what he needed himself. And his discipline always has a direction to it. Always wanting to get Zechariah and to get us somewhere. And how do we know that he eventually did humble himself and submit to the Lord's work? Well, he blessed God the moment his mouth was opened. He blessed the Lord. So now, in faith, he speaks. And he speaks in obedience. He doesn't say, no, name him Zechariah like we were planning on for all these years if we ever had a child. He says, no, his name is John. He chooses the name that the angel gave to him. And so I want to press in on this just for a moment because 
As I mentioned, Zechariah kind of had a choice, right? He could sit with his doubts. He could harden his heart. He could become so stubborn that nothing God did could convince him that it was good for him to have experienced this. And there, there is a point, I mean, later in Jesus's ministry, you see the stubbornness of doubt and unbelief at work in, in the Pharisees, for example. And at one point, Jesus tells them, hey, you guys don't listen to Moses or the prophets and everything they've said. Neither will you listen, even if someone should rise from the dead. Your heart is so hard to the Lord that even if someone should rise from the dead, you have closed yourself off to him. That's the nature of persistent, stubborn unbelief. Is that it is not satisfied with what God has provided and it's not satisfiable. There's nothing that could be done to satisfy it. And so maybe you are like this or have been like this at some point, and maybe you know people like this who, whatever question they ask, whatever answer you give, it's never going to be enough to convince them of something. Not asking questions, seeking an answer, seeking to submit to what maybe the Lord has said, but just asking questions to poke holes and to even argue back. And, and, and when we're in a place like that, it is very difficult to get to a point where we can trust anyone other than ourselves. But Zechariah gets to the point where he says, no, I am going to submit myself to the Lord. Now, this is not some blind faith that ignores the fact that we have real hard questions as, as people, right? Zechariah had difficult things he was wrestling with that we have difficult things we're wrestling with that, that we are not told when we enter into the Christian life just to leave your questions and your doubts at the door because God doesn't want to hear those. That is not the consistent witness of Scripture. That's not even what Jesus did. Faith and reason, as we often see these two pitted against each other, they're not incompatible with one another. Spurgeon said beautifully, faith is reason at rest in God. By faith, you bring what is difficult about the Christian faith, the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, his resurrection, whatever it may be. You bring these things and you bring them to the Lord and you say, help me understand. Like the guy who came to Jesus needing his child to be healed and he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. These things work together at times. And so Zechariah gets to the point where he does submit himself to the Lord. God breaks him of his heart of disobedience and doubt. Because here's the thing. God knew that he was going to allow Elizabeth to have a child. So God didn't need to answer Zechariah's questions in that moment. He needed to deal with the sin in Zechariah's heart that was keeping him from believing the Lord. God is most interested at going beneath the service to get at whatever is going on in us that needs fixing. He cares more about sanctifying Zechariah than he does just alleviating him of his doubts in that moment. And so the story ends with Zechariah prophesying to the Lord. Let's read it together. Look at verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, speaking to John, will be called prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. In verse 80, final verse of chapter one, and the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Zechariah, who used his mouth to question the Lord is now using that same mouth to prophesy a word about his son, John, and eventually Jesus. I love this, and I've never put this together until this week, that the same way Zechariah sinned against God, God is now using that same means to cause him to praise the Lord. That's how specific God's redemptive work can be in our lives. With his mouth he sinned, and now with his mouth he is prophesying and praising the Lord. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So as we close this morning, I recognize that all of us probably approach Christmas from a different perspective. Maybe you will find more uh, in common with Mary next week is just kind of the humble servant who's ready to do anything and everything the Lord asks you and praise the Lord for that. But maybe you find yourself in the place of Zechariah more often, uh, struggling to take the Lord at his word and asking questions. But hear me this morning, the gospel was intended for you if you're in that place. Gospel was intended, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was for skeptical people like Zechariah and like you and like me. And why is it good news? Well, because God recognizes that our doubts often begin with disappointment. That questions that are in our minds often find their root at something in our heart that is displeased or frustrated with the Lord. And God wants to go down to that level to repair your heart and then bring you to a place where you can accept and receive the truth of his word. The gospel is good news for skeptical people because God does not write us off when we blow it. Mention this was the biggest moment in Zechariah's life to this point, right? Angel of the Lord appears to him and he blows it. But God doesn't write him off. In his grace, God disciplines his servant until he comes to a point where he can praise the Lord after his child is born. It took nine months, but I guarantee you Zechariah would say after the fact that it was worth it. And he praised God that he didn't discard him when he sinned. Gospel is also good news for skeptical people. 
Because God is not frightened by our questions and our doubts. Like over 2,000 years, just about every objection has been raised to the Christian faith that you could possibly ever find. And each of those has been answered by faithful believers who have thought well about hard things. And God is, God is not frightened by this. I, I think of my friend Steve Robinson, who is a physics professor at Belmont University, one of the brightest, sharpest guys that I know, teaching in a very difficult place and naturally skeptical mind, but he came to faith in Christ in his 20s and he brought his reason, if you will, to God. And now God is using him to lead students in, in physics in Belmont to Christ. And he's led several to Christ because God redeems those kinds of things. Oh, and, and the last thing, and this will kind of take us into the Lord's Supper, is that the gospel is good news for skeptical people because it deals with our most fundamental problem, which is not that we're disappointed because our life hasn't turned out how we wanted it to. Most fundamental problem is not that we have some questions that God hasn't yet given us the answers to. Our most fundamental problem is not that we have some unfulfilled longings. Our most fundamental problem is that we have a heart of unbelief that God must repair. That we, by nature, are born in sin, inclined towards sin. Everything we naturally want to do is to move away from God and towards our sin and ourselves. And so that's why when God sent Jesus. He didn't just send Jesus with a list of answers to every doubt as if that was the cure to our problem. He sent Jesus to go to the cross to deal fully and finally with our sin, to offer us life forever in Christ. Oh, that's why we have so much joy at Christmas. And so we're going to celebrate the Lord's supper together and so before we do that if you're here this morning you're a follower of christ you can say yes my life has been covered by the blood of jesus and i am looking to him by faith then this meal this morning is for you pray that you would take it in faith that you would confess your sins to the lord trust that he will forgive you in christ If you're here this morning and you can't say that yet, you can't say that you are a follower of Jesus or that you are still wrestling through some of these things, then I just ask that you wait on taking this meal until you're at a point where you can look to Christ in faith fully and forever.